You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey everybody, Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual component of our event series where we bring you authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary at the outset of each event, I would like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, City Lights in conjunction with Trinity University Press celebrate the publication of Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before and other essays on writing fiction. We are delighted to have with us its author, Peter Turchi. We've had the great pleasure of hosting him before. This is Peter Turchi's third book on the craft of fiction and goes beyond the basics to explore the intricate mechanics of storytelling, combining personal narrative with close readings of a wide range of stories and novels. Mr. Turchi explores how writers create the beloved fiction that we all treasure. Peter Turchi has written and co-edited several books on writing fiction, including Maps of the Imagination, The Writer as Cartographer, and Amuse and Amaze, Writing as Puzzle, Mystery, and Magic. His stories have appeared in Plowshares, Story, The Alaska Quarterly Review, and The Colorado Review, amongst other journals. He has received numerous honors for his work, and he is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Houston. Joining him tonight in conversation is Austin Kleon. Austin Kleon is a New York Times bestselling author. His books include Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, Keep Going, and Newspaper Blackout, amongst others. His works focus on creativity. He has given talks widely about the subject, and has delivered talks at Pixar, Google, TED Talks, and at conferences such as the Economist's Human Potential Summit. Before we begin, I would like to remind everyone that we will be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of tonight's titles. Uh, also encourage everyone to please switch to speaker view as to enhance your viewing abilities. That can be affected by the prompt in the upper right-hand corner of your Zoom dashboard. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to Peter Turchi and Austin Cleon. Welcome to City Lights, gentlemen. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, last time uh, Peter and I talked was 2015. We just found out. So um, uh, I'm delighted to to see you, Peter. And congratulations on this new book. Thanks. I appreciate it. And yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been that long, but it's nice to talk to you again. It's nice to see you. And it's nice to see all these faces uh, showing up. Um, so I'm going to just roll right into it. So I, you know, the past, um, I have been a fan of yours since, uh, let's see, where is it here? I've been a fan of yours since this book, um, the writer uh, as cartographer, Maps of the Imagination, the writer as cartographer. Um, and then I was delighted by your follow-up to that, Amuse and Amaze. Um, both of these books are, one of the reasons I love these books so much is that they kind of come at fiction like from a, you know, from a from a, a 
come at writing and 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 at a at a kind of sideways you know what i mean it, it uses these big metaphors to kind of come at at writing from a from an interesting angle um this new book which i liked very much too it almost feels a little bit more straightforward than the other books um there's still your you still have a lot of really interesting metaphors and you bring in a lot of different material to this but i was the, my first question to you is what made you want to do a more straightforward book of essays? I feel like this is very much in line with the, the craft of fiction writing type type books. And I was just curious about your, your, what, what led you to this kind of book? Yeah, well, the, uh, as you know, the first two books have dozens of illustrations and uh, for both of those, it took me about six months to acquire all the permissions for that. And I said, no more illustrations. <laughs> but but that's not the primary reason that this is a different book. That, that first book, Maps the Imagination, I mean, really was, when I remember writing that book, it really was an act of passion. You know, I was just so deep into it. It started with the question of how is, how is a story or a novel like a map, which is a question that came to mind because of a book called The Power of Maps. And it just kept taking me farther and farther and farther. And and also Alan Garganis said uh, a long time ago that uh, uh, you put you try to put everything into a first novel. And I didn't do that with my first novel, but that first book about writing, as you know, it's got the Marx Brothers in it. It's got Looney Tunes. It's got board games, just everything connected for me. And so that's what kind of book that is. Uh, but it all hinges on how is a story or a novel like a map? Although I also talk about poetry and screenplays and other kinds of writing. And then Amuse and Amaze kind of came together as a group of essays. Uh, I was working on different topics and then I realized what all those essays had in common, which still relates back to the map idea, is that uh, they were all about the arrangement of information in some way and how you can lead a reader forward, how you can mislead a reader, how you can create mystery all of those things. And, you know, puzzle making is to some extent the art of both guiding a puzzle solver in a particular direction, but also trying to fool them or keep them off guard in some way. And I also talk about magic in that book, which led me to interesting places. So with this book, I did want to be a little more straightforward. This one came about largely through questions or topics that had come up a lot when I, you know, I teach undergraduates and MFA students and graduate uh, PhD students. Uh, in various places. And there were certain topics that had come up again and again that I hadn't written about and I didn't have a resource to point people to. And so I wanted to write essays about those topics. And I also, I had in mind that, you know, one thing that I wanted to try to offer, um, which I do in the appendices in this book, is some thoughts for people who aren't either don't want to be in a graduate program or can't for some reason go to a graduate program, but want to develop their writing. And so I write about, you know, as you know, workshops and about how to make the most of your reading in those essays at the end, so that ideally somebody could pick this up and have a pretty good idea, even if they've gone through a graduate program, how they might continue to build their work. But also, when it comes to straightforwardness, one of these essays is about digressions and asides because I can't help myself. There is always some kind of digressive element. I love the part where you talk about misdirect. You you yeah, bring up magic again, and there's a line in there about misdirection. You say misdirection has to point at something, though. I'm right. I'm getting it wrong, but I, I I love that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like the the idea that you have to point people towards something to misdirect yeah, that, them. 
And I'll back up just a second because Mapsley, so one of the people who is amused, I guess, by amused and amazed was a wonderful magician named Joshua Jay. And uh, uh, he he was keen enough on the book that he came and visited one of my classes, which was great. And he also invited me to give a talk at the Magic Castle, which was terrifying, Um, but it was also great fun. And and so I started to talk to him about writing about magic, which I, I wasn't, didn't really have an insider's view of. I'm not a magician. And so I wrote to him about misdirection, and he pointed me to that Tommy Wonder essay, which was in a book he had actually republished. And it's Tommy Wonder, the magician, who's, who says that, because magicians debate that term misdirection. And he said, it's not really misdirection because you can't point away from something and expect people to look that way. You have to point at something, and it's just not you know, where you need, you need their eyes somewhere else. So you can do this other thing. So you need to point over there. And I do think it's useful to uh, fiction writing. It's also probably true to love letters and business memos, you know, that there are times you're trying to hide information or do something in the background. And so you have this other thing going on in the foreground to kind of either, you know, it's the old speaker's trick where you tell an amusing anecdote at the beginning. So you can work into more serious content or something, but you loosen up your audience. And that's a rhetorical strategy related a little bit to misdirection. I love that. Um, I was going to ask you, I have so many things I want to ask you. I want to go back to this idea that you wanted to include people that might not be able to be in a writing workshop, because one of the things I really admire about you is that you talk a lot about not just how great you, you know you're you teach a lot of writing workshops and but you aren't like you aren't like singing the praises of workshops all for all workshops you are very clear about what some of the pitfalls of a writing workshop can be can you talk a little bit and, and you even have feelings you're like k ryan uh k ryan one time said i don't know why we call it a workshop i mean a workshop is a place where you go to like work <laughs> you know, and so um, or, or to make things, you know, um, I wonder if you could talk about you have another conception of a different model that we could think of instead of the workshop. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that essay is actually caught out of the workshop into the laboratory. And I'm trying to, as you say, work away from the metaphor, which is the notion that that either that you do work in the workshop, you don't you bring you know, drafts in, or that other people are going to correct it or fix it in the workshop. This is not a useful approach. But if you look at it as a place where you can, you know, bring something in, sometimes it's a fragment. Sometimes it's, you know, a draft that you're stuck on. Sometimes it's something you think is pretty far along. And you're just listening to other readers' ideas. In my workshop, you can ask questions about it too, and kind of guide our attention to it. And we sit around and talk about it. And we don't pass, I mean, people have opinions, of course, but we don't sit there and, you know, vote up or vote down about whether the thing works. We're all thinking, well, what are the options here, you know, and what's exciting about it? One of the things that um, Madison Smart Bell is one of the people I quote in that essay, and, and he's, he says, rightly, I think, and he doesn't mean to endorse this view, but he said, too often workshops are fault-finding mechanisms. That is, we don't feel like we've done our job unless we've found something wrong. And I certainly can say that they're are times I've probably fallen into that trap. But I do think it's it's uh, helpful to recognize that sometimes the thing that seems most ungainly, strangest, you know, the thing that seems oddest and maybe could be erased or sanded over or whatever in a work is often the thing that has to be nurtured. 
you know, it's the most exciting thing or the most individual thing. And it, it takes practice to, to allow for that, that maybe the story needs to be less neat and less polished and this other thing has to be allowed to erupt. I want to zoom in on this because I, this is one of my favorite points of yours. And there are other people that make it too. Um, David Mamet says that I used to say that a good writer throws out the stuff that everyone else keeps, but he says a better test occurs to me. Perhaps a good writer keeps the stuff that everyone else throws out. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm thinking about this. George Saunders tells a good story about when he was in workshops with uh, Tobias Wolf. And, you know, he talks about getting into his MFA program by writing this crazy story that was very much him and his voice and, and really out there. And then when he got to, to uh, his MFA program, he said to Toby, well, he's like, okay, well, now I'm going to really write. And, and Toby kind of looked at him and said, well, just don't lose the magic. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I wondered, you know, I mean, this is a very general question, but how do writers avoid losing not having these edges sanded out, you know, how do you survive, you know, whether it's the workshop or the, um, the, you know, formal education in general, or, or even the marketplace, how do you keep your edges? Do you have, do you have any sense of like, how does someone figure out how to keep those weird things that are, that might seem bumpy or weird and, but to, to grow them and not, I mean, I think it was, um, uh, it was that uh, is Cocteau. I think you said anything a critic criticizes you for, you should just grow. <laughs> you should go for. It. But, yeah. but I'm not so sure about that. But how do you, you know, how do you keep your weirdness? I guess is one of my questions. Yeah, I mean, there's that perverse impulse to to work against what everybody says, but that of course doesn't always lead you in a good position. But but you know, one of the things I worry about with my older MFA students and my PhD students is they they don't always look like they're having fun. <laughs> and, you know, obviously a lot of the work they're doing is very serious work and that's important, but almost everybody who devotes a lot of their time to writing is doing it because at some point they got a lot of pleasure from reading and some pleasure from writing. Even, even if you're writing about trauma, even if you're writing about dark material, it's rewarding to you in some way. And and sometimes when I see, uh, you know, as I said, it's not usually undergraduates uh, because they're still playing. It's all it's all game, you know, and they're having yeah. a great time. Uh, but as people get older and they start to think, oh, am I going to teach or, you know, what am I going to do with this? Or am I going to be able to make money this way? And all of that, you just see it way on people. And so part of my job, I think, is to try to make room for and encourage people to, you know, tap back into whatever that was that made this seem like the best possible thing you could do with your time. And it is possible sometimes to think all these other people are doing this and they say we should all be doing this. You know, I mean, right now, for instance, you can hear some writers say we should all be writing about the climate because we're in a terrible place and this is important material. And I think you can, as a person, say, yes, the where we are with the climate right now is pretty serious and I hope people are working on it and I have opinions about it. But that doesn't mean we all have to write about it like a homework assignment. You know, I mean, we all have to write from our own passions, our own experience. And, you know, for myself, I, I uh, you know, I, my analogy is noise canceling headphones. I mean, I sit down to write, I really do have to try to block everything else out and think about what excites me with the hope that it'll interest and excite other people. And I, I hope I can encourage my students, you know, 
we had a guy, uh, a hardworking guy last semester who was doing a pretty weird piece and we all read it last semester and we were just like, I, you know, I don't know. Nobody, I was hoping somebody else would get it and really run with it, but we all just stared at each other and thought, I, what is this exactly? And, you know, I had to make sure before we were done that just because we didn't get it, just because it wasn't fully communicated yet, doesn't mean he needed to drop this thing. You know, it just meant he'd gone into some very odd place that we didn't recognize and we needed more help to understand what he was doing. Have you ever had a student totally surprise you? I mean, you don't have to name names, but was there anyone that you like, uh, was there ever a student that you had that that did something later on that really, really like surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you do this long enough, you have the people who, you know, you see their work initially and you think they are going to do well. Right. And then other people, you say, well, they're here, but, you know, we'll see. And yeah. yes, certainly I've had people I thought were definitely going to just soar, just be quieter. You know, it doesn't mean they weren't smart and good and talented, but they didn't seem to make the most of that. And then uh, and then some other people who I thought, you know, were kind of more modestly situated. It's just a matter of time. You know, sometimes... Yeah. I've worked with students. I've actually done this only about three or four times. I've had a student and I've said, this book is going to sell. I don't know if it's going to sell much. I don't know who's going to sell to, but this book is done and it's impressive. And sometimes in one case within that year, that book was bought and published. In another case, it took 10 years and it's, it's a great book. And who can say why, you know, it's, that's the marketplace and I am no predictor of the marketplace. I always feel like I think it's that William, I think it's Golding or, you know, nobody knows anything. Yeah, William Goldman. Yeah, William right. Goldman. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knows anything. That is, that is the major rule, I think, in this business and seems to be everything. Well, I worry, you know, I, I'm one of those, I'm a kind of old fashioned in the sense that I tell most of my students not to send work out while they're in the workshop, because one of the things that's hardest for people to learn is how to really revise their work. And if you're constantly hoping that the draft you're working on will be the last one, it's uh, it's very difficult to, to really explore the work because you're thinking constantly, can I be finished now? Can I be finished now? Right. It's hard to discover anything that way. So I try to, you know, dampen expectations. I can't prohibit them from sending work out, but I, I discourage it. But Obviously, there's a, there you know you reach the point when you want the work to be out in the world, but but uh, I think for most people to move past the first impulse and to really think about where else the work could go, to look at an early draft as the beginning of possibility for the work and not a failed final draft is pretty important. I was just watching a Leonard Cohen documentary last night, and he went through an unbelievable amount of drafts. Uh, with his songs and he talks really beautifully about that process david markson one time they were he's talking about the internet and he's like i don't know how people live in that first draft world yeah. and i was going to ask you like how do you get your students comfortable with revision or how do you get them into that that mindset that you're going to do 10 12 you know how many drafts who knows like how do you what's what's the best path to that that you can you know think of yeah one of the there's a a good buddy of mine somebody i went to graduate school with and and now teach with uh one of my best friends robert boswell uh talks about lateral revision uh which is to think not about again can i finish right now but what if i change the point of view 
you know, what if I move this scene that's at the end where I seem to be answering a lot of things to the beginning? Do I still have a story? And if so, is it the same story or have I, you know, changed a lot by moving that information? And so I give students exercises and they're not random exercises, but they're exercises to apply to their drafts just to, you know, think of it as elastic, to think of it as material, not as, you know, something precious that you can't touch or else maybe it'll fall apart. And so that's one of the things we, we try to do. And part of it, again, is just encouraging in workshop discussions and in our other conversations, encouraging this consideration of possibilities as opposed to, you know, is it done? Is there something wrong with this sentence? That's not helpful. It's like, if this is your character, what if, you know, this other thing happened? And even if they don't do it, even if they don't pursue that, just to keep entering the world of the fiction and thinking about its possibilities usually enriches the story. I, I love that. And I feel like that, that like, I feel like that really works with the lab metaphor of, of thinking of it as that, like, okay, we got our little beakers here that we're growing, you know, they've got their little stuff, you know, the, the beakers going and the, and the, and the experiments and stuff. I feel like that, that helps. <laughs> well, this is, this is your world, but you know, when I, whenever I work with visual artists, I'm always struck by the fact that painters, um, you know, uh, illustrators, uh, even sculptors, I don't know why I said even sculptors, sculptors, <laughs> visual artists in general, uh, do a lot of studies. You know, every artist I know, you know, if they're, if they're working on figures, they'll draw elbows, you know, they'll, they'll work on hands, not because they want to do a drawing of a hand necessarily, but, but they need to understand hands if they're going to draw people. You need to understand a tree, you know, if you're going to draw trees. So they do isolated sketches. For some reason in writing, I mean, that's not how we traditionally teach writing. You know, it's not that you should just work on dialogue for a while or work on dialogue among four people or work on dialogue in a party scene, which would be very helpful for a lot of people because it's hard to do. Uh, but instead we think, all right, write a story, you know, finish a story. And I think to take the pressure off that a little bit and to think about doing studies, you know, think about just focus on, you know, one of the essays in this book is about shifting power dynamics in a scene. And so, you know, I almost always at some point in the semester say, this is write a scene and let's think about how authority is going to shift over the course of the scene and what that reveals about character. And if you can apply it to a story that you're working on, great. Otherwise, we'll do it, you know, independent of those. Let's talk about the, the kind of multidisciplinary, because you seem to be someone that's interested and so many things and really takes inspiration from different places. I wanted to ask you about one thing in particular, because I think music comes up a lot um, in, in your work. And, and, and I, I feel this funny thing with writers and musicians. I feel like every writer really wishes they were a musician. <laughs> and every musician would kind of like to be a writer. Like there's this kind of interesting, like yeah. uh, there's, there's a kind of like, well, I know for sure that writers would love to be musicians on the whole. <laughs> so that I'm sure of. So I wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with music? What is it? How I, I mean, is it I, in your life? I listen to music, but my, my wife, who's not a professional musician, but she plays viola every day. She just finished practicing before we started. So I hear uh, music being played in the house every day. And it's no surprise then that our son became a musician although he just got his uh, MFA in poetry too. Uh, but, but uh, you know, I think there's definitely overlap. I, I mean, I would like to be able to play music, but I don't think I would, I know I can't cut it as a musician. So I've never been sitting around just thinking, you know, that's, I should have gone that route because it would be hopeless. It's, it's just not possible. 
Um, and I'm sure there are musicians, you know, when I, there's a terrific series, I guess it's just two fat volumes called Songwriters on Songwriting. Uh, and it's really fascinating to me how many of those songwriters from, you know, Tom Lear and David Byrne and Paul Simon to pretty contemporary songwriters, how many of them talk about the music uh, almost mathematically? You know, I mean, they're thinking about what certain chords do, what certain progressions do, what what moods are created with certain chords. And then they talk about lyrics, most of them very differently. Obviously, David Byrne, Paul Simon, they, you know, they're, they're more associative. Bob Dylan is even interviewed in there. And they tend not to explain or be reductive about their lyrics. You know, they probably Tom Lear is a little bit different, but but they they this is if there are any poets listening to us, they're going to have hives here in a second, but I apologize. But, but I think they approach, necessarily, they approach lyrics a little more poetically because they're working in a, under pretty heavy constraints. So you don't have many words to use. And so it's important to be associative and be attentive to, to syntax and rhythm and all that. And then with the music, as I said, it, a different part of the brain seems to kick in with a lot of, obviously that can't apply to all music, but it seems to apply to a lot of music. And since I'm with musicians all the time. I'm always thinking about those things. I love those books. Those It's Songwriters on Songwriting, if anyone is interested. It's Paul Zollo, I think. Is that mm -hmm. Zollo or Zollo? Z-O-L-L-O. -O. Um, they're wonderful books. I have both volumes. Um, let's talk about books for a minute because one of the things, I, <laughs> this is a bit as if we haven't for the past <laughs> 30 minutes. Um, one of the things I love about your book um, that we're talking about tonight. We'll do another plug for it. Don't stop me if you've heard this before. Um, one of the things I love about your book is it's actually a great, um, it's a great sampler uh, because you can, you can actually, um, you can get a feel for whether you want to read some of these pieces that you're writing about because you read it, you write about so many stories and about uh, so many different books and, um, the two I'm I'm trying to think of the two I really wanted to put. Well, I know I want to give Rachel Cusk's outline another go, mm -hmm. and I know I want to read reread a hundred years of solitude um, again. Read because uh, that's been years. But I wanted to ask you, you know, when you're when you're working on a project like this, how do you pull up? What do you? How do you know what you want to write about? Like, how do you pull these these books and these stories yeah. up? How do you decide? And how do you decide what you want to teach in a class? Yeah, well, the in response to the last, when I do seminars now, like the one I'm doing right now, I pick a theme. This semester's theme is road trips. Oh, that's uh, fun. With an exclamation mark, road trips. And uh, I generate a list of books. I think it was 40 for the, it was some overwhelming number, uh, terrified the students. And I send <laughs> it out to them right before the semester starts and I let them vote. And oh. not, not everybody votes, but but okay. they vote. and it's not a wholly democratic process because I don't want to have you know eight doorstops. I mean, I yeah. you know, want the reading to be reasonable, and uh, also I want to vary some in time and by gender and other things. Um, but but I kind of factor in their votes, and then I put together a reading list. Uh, I I mean when when I went to school, you know, three hundred years ago. Uh, we pretty much took what was served to us. I mean, that's the way it was done, you know, and you were largely, the idea was to catch you up on things you should have read. And uh, I do a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Um, but I also know that most of the students I work with these days are pretty interested in what's going on fairly recently. I don't mean this week necessarily, but, you know, in the last 10 years. 
And so I try to mix in a good bit of contemporary work. But I mean, we started the semester with uh, Basho, so so much for that. There uh, you go. And then we did a 19th century book, uh, Flatland, and now we're vaulting forward into the into the 20th and 21st uh, centuries. But for the books, you know, it's a it's a combination. Like that power plays essay, that that very notion came to me because of Hemingway's The Short Happy Life, Francis McComer. I was thinking about what makes that story operate so interestingly. And as I worked it out, you know, I thought about this notion of how power shifts over the course of the story. And so I felt like I had to include that um, in that in that essay, even though I also refer to what an Alice Monroe story and originally I, I had included Catherine M. Porter. Uh, and then with other pieces, you know, there's a piece on, on uh, on narrative distance in the first person. Basically, whether the reader is asked to fully consider a first person narrator as a character. This is something that came up in classes again and again and again. And I was trying to make the point and I thought I need to sit down and write this so I can I can make the case. I can explain what I'm up to here. And I, for some reason I went back and looked at Huck Finn and it's something that Twain does amazingly well in that book, which is, Sometimes we take Huck's, you know, at face value, sincerely and removed by what he says and his insights. And other times he's completely naive. And we sometimes laugh at him, sometimes find things poignant that he doesn't recognize as poignant. And Twain manipulates that distance incredibly effectively. And so I started with him, and I think Holden Caulfield's in there too, uh, or another Salinger story. And then uh, and then I zip forward to Olga Tukorzik and Rachel Cusk and and some more contemporary people. So, you know, my hope with all those things is that I summarize the pieces effectively enough that you can understand what I'm talking about, you know, in the piece, even though yeah. I don't want to retell the whole story. And then, yeah, if you're excited about any of them, you'll hunt them down. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like it's like getting Kindle sample chapters or something. I don't know. It's just, there's, there, there's, there's different ways to read Well, I'm trying to, to, what I would love for everyone listening to, to, to dig, I guess, is that there's different ways to, there's different ways you can come at this book. Like, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the majority of people will be people who are interested in, in writing fiction, but I also think you can learn a lot about reading fiction you, you know, from, from the book. I, I think that, um, and, and that's why I like so much that you get a feel for these different stories. Um, and, and, and so that's, I, I just wanted to like, highlight that a little bit because I think that I, well, because that's who I am too, is that I'm yeah. no one who's, you know, I, I don't feel that I have, I, I don't think in character. I don't think in terms of plot. I, I don't have the mind for fiction, but I love reading it. And I'm, find the older I get, the more that um, fiction contains truth that you don't get anywhere else. Um, and so as a reader, I, 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 th I think that I think that learning some of these craft things, some of these technical things, I think I think it I think it enriches the reading experience. I don't, I don't think you need it, but I right. necessarily, but I think it does. Yeah, question I get all the time is, can you still enjoy fiction if you're thinking about it like this? And I think, no, I hate, I hate my life. This, this yeah, is right. I <laughs> no, I, I, no I, it only gives me more pleasure, you know, because I can, you know, if I'm captivated by a book or a story, I can just read it and I can laugh or wonder about the mystery. I'm terrible. I'm still a naive reader in that 
I mean, my wife will start a novel and she'll say, I know exactly what's going to happen. And she'll tell me. Yeah. And I just don't think that way. I'm along for the ride. Yeah. But I can also stop and notice what's going on within image or metaphor and appreciate that, even if something about the plot is not exciting, you know. And so there's just many more ways to enjoy a book. And I, I realized, I mean, I think more people do this. I was reading some piece the other day about how a particular shot, I think it was in Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, just how it was set up and why without actually putting a plane propeller near anybody's face, we get the impression that this plane propeller hit somebody's yeah. face. And they were talking about where the camera set up and the fact that rather than move the propeller close, close to the face, the camera cuts into tighter and tighter close-ups. So we have the feeling that this thing we hear must be coming close to the face. And I'm not gonna make a movie I'm certainly not going to be a cameraman. You know, this is not this is not my job. But I'm fascinated by that. And of course, I immediately think, well, what's the equivalent? You know, what how's that apply to what I do? But yeah, all that, all that process stuff I enjoy. And I hope, you know, my equivalent in this book, it's not maps, it's not puzzles, but as you know, in most of these essays, I tell stories from life. I mean, they're anecdotes that open them. And the purpose of the anecdotes is not just to be kind of entertaining, but to demonstrate that these things I'm talking about are not nerdy things that only writers think about, but they're things that happen in storytelling and life all the time. And this is just a way to think about them and look for them in the written fiction. I want to ask you about something kind of far out because I don't know when we're going to get to talk next. Right. Um, hopefully next week, but you quote an essay by uh, Ellen Bryant Voigt, who I'm oh, not... Yeah who I'm not familiar with and I haven't tracked this essay. Stop yet. right now. Yes. <laughs> so she says, I would love for you to talk about a little bit about paradox because it's something I'm kind of obsessed with myself right now. One of the things she talks about with images in writing is the essential paradox of you're making an image out of words, basically. Right. And right. she says that some of the most effective, what that, if I'm going to get this right, she says it reflects the paradox of human consciousness, which is the fact that our mind, like our thinking, is also a body. Yeah. Um, and she says that m the most effective images are those in which these kind of two poles are, they, they kind of collapse in on themselves in this image. Um, could you speak a little bit about paradox in fiction and in fiction writing? Because it's just something I'm really obsessed with right now. And I just wondered if you have any ideas about it. I'll probably, approach that, I'll probably approach that at a, at a slant. But first, since you haven't run across Ellen before, I must tell you, uh, she, she founded the writing program at Warren Wilson. She's an amazing poet. And she's about to, her, her uh, collected poems comes out uh, later this month. Oh, and, fantastic. Uh, she's just a, a phenomenal poet. That essay that I quote, uh, which is, I think, just called Image, uh, or maybe it's on images, is in the flexible lyric, her first book of craft. She has uh, that and the art of syntax are her two books about poetry, although she also writes about uh, fiction and those, but she's writing for poets. Um, so, so paradox in terms of images is important. And, you know, I quote her at the end there when things are getting kind of deep because here, so here's the setup for that essay. I, again and again, I would teach a story uh, or give students a story and ask them if they noticed any recurrent images. 
And almost always it was no, or sometimes they would notice, you know, an image that appeared twice or something like that. One of the stories I talk about is by a Canadian writer named Guy Vanderhaeg called The Jimi Hendrix Experience. And on the surface, it's just a simple little coming of age story, except the ending doesn't make sense if you think of it that way. But it's, it's a pretty simple, familiar looking story. And I give that to students and I say, do you notice any recurring images? And maybe they'll mention that they noticed fire. But what they didn't notice was that there are something like 17 references to fire in eight pages. And it just comes at you again and again and again and again. And ultimately, as I try to argue in this essay, it, those images kind of supply not the answer to the story, but tell us what the story is about in a way that nothing else in the story does. There are different ways to use images in fiction, but the question that would always come up in classes is, if I didn't notice it, can it have any effect on me? And so I start the essay by talking about film soundtracks where we can be watching a scene where somebody's in the dark in their apartment and we are not just watching it, but we are squirming in our chairs and it's because of something an oboe is doing. Or, you know, you watch Jaws and there's a tuba doing that thing again. <laughs> and you know, it's yeah. a shark. I mean, there's no shark in sight, but we hear that tuba and we get all excited. And so it has an effect on us, even though we're not, we don't probably ever think of a tuba while we're watching Jaws. But in any case, uh, images can have that effect on us too in poetry and in fiction. And so the, the paradox, as Ellen says, is that, is that uh, the image has to be presented in words, it has to be conveyed in words on the page, but ideally when it has that kind of effect, it's actually transcending the mere description. It's not just the sun, it's not just fire, it's not just a Vander Higgs as a corona of genius around Jimi Hendrix. Um, it's not just those exact words, but we start to see how it accumulates to something larger and more complex than that. And, you know, metaphor works the same way. You know, my love is like a red, red rose. Well, that would be a Hallmark card if it stopped there. But then the question is, was it really like a rose? You know, there are thorns on a rose. If we're going to be honest about it, what does that say about love? And so Shakespeare unpacks a more complicated argument than a lesser poet. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I have so much I want to ask you, but um, I think we're going to open up to questions pretty soon. But I'm going to give you a couple of speed round questions right. just for fun, just some goofy ones. Right, and while I'm, while I'm asking Peter these goofy questions, you guys type your questions in the chat. I'll take a look at that soon. Um, I have recently become obsessed with Roger's Thesaurus. Okay, so I grew up, I mean, I'm a child of the 90s, basically, every thesaurus I'd ever picked up in my life was an alphabetical synonym dictionary, basically, I'd never actually seen the book, where it's all like, organized by category. Hmm. So this is like a recent mind blower to me. Um, I was going to ask you, do you have favorite reference books? Do you have books that you keep on the shelf near you when you write? Do you have anything you have to have nearby? No, I'm, I mean, I have, you know, the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetic Terms and, and some other things on the shelf, but no, it tends to depend on the project that I'm working on. But I have to tell you that I did, I couldn't help myself. I wrote a story from the point of view of Roger's wife, uh, and she was exasperated with trying to have a conversation with him because, of course, he kept, <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> it was kind of a one note story, but I couldn't keep myself from doing it. I love um, that. <laughs> or you just wonder what kind of mind does that all the time, right? Just and you, and you, you always wonder what kind of spouse puts up with it. You, you, <laughs> I'm always wanting to meet everyone's spouse, always. Uh -huh. 
I always yeah. feel that way. Okay, goofiest thing you do for a ritual when you write. Do you have any goofy uh, rituals? To goofy ritual, goofy. Would you like me to share ritual. one of mine, and that would well, help you open up? Well, this is not so goofy, but I, I do uh, compose, you know, on a laptop. I, uh -huh. I write a draft on a laptop, but at some point, I, I mean, I, I do revise on on a computer too. But at some point, I have to print it out and edit by hand, and then at some point, I read it aloud and start to edit the sentences for syntax and rhythm and notice that I've, you know, repeated words I don't want to repeat or that I've written three sentences in a row with lists that have three elements. And I, but usually I hear that kind of thing. And so yeah. I have to read it aloud and then I go back to the computer and I keep working that way. I, I really, I encourage so many younger writers, you know, younger than me, print your stuff out, take it. And then the thing I do is because I have a pretty decent podcast mic because I do a lot of podcasts and I, I put the headphones on and listen to myself like I'm doing an audio book <laughs> because I did my first, I never got to do an audio book until a couple of years ago. And I realized, my God, you should have to do the audio book before you turn the manuscript in because you find <laughs> every freaking thing that was wrong with your manuscript. <laughs> You're like in yeah. the... Like, <laughs> Why, so I should make a plug, you know, the, all these essays, almost all these essays from all three books uh, started as lectures at at the the residency MFA program at Warren Wilson, and the one exception to that is that the the uh, next to last essay in this book. Don't stop me if you've heard this before. Uh, I did an I did a lecture I don't know twenty years ago maybe at Warren Wilson about stories in which a character retells a story, and I'm interested in characters that are people that are haunted by stories for some reason they keep telling the same story, and then I thought that was a little too narrow. And so I started to look at, you know, other possibilities for how characters tell stories. And so I wrote this essay and I thought, this is the first time in my entire career, 30 years at Warren Wilson, that I've written my lecture, you know, four months in advance. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought of a different way I could approach it. And so the book was done and I completely rewrote the essay as a lecture because I was thinking about who I was going to talk to and some opportunities I had by talking to that particular group. And so I gave a a version of it that only exists on tape at Warren Wilson that I was very fond of. But but yeah, it makes such a difference when you think about uh, speaking to a particular audience and right when you speak it at all, it changes how you think about the sentences. I I mean, it, it, it freaks me out all the time how some of my favorite books are, they start out as lecture collections. I mean, like William James, for example, I just mm -hmm. think is like, you know, like something like the varieties of religious experience, which I just read like a couple of years ago. I just thought this is so good. But, you know, all lectures all had to get up. And and I'm thinking, my God, who got to, you know, you think about like back in the day, people would show up to these lectures, you know, ready to listen to William James talk for two hours. You know, you're yeah. like, it's just mind blowing. OK, let's take some questions. I think this is a fun. I, I'm just going to whip. We'll try to whip through these. Okay. Um, Hi, Peter. You seem to reference films a lot, and images seem central to your books. Has watching films informed your book writing? Yes. No, I, I should add a little bit to that, I guess. You write about uh, Jaws. You write about a great document. <laughs> you write about a great documentary I watched, Making Waves. Oh, right. The CC, the right, sound has design. The CC bit. Yeah, and, and there's also uh, Chernobyl 
is in yep. there this time and diner diner the movie if if all this book accomplishes is it gets another 10 people to watch diner i'll be pleased okay it'll be me because i've never <laughs> seen it and really? always saw it and wondered what the hell is this you know <laughs> but, but in, in part i talk i don't probably i used to be a film reviewer a long time ago but uh-huh. these See, this days is- i don't watch as many films as a lot thank you to whoever said diner's fantastic um i probably don't watch as many films as most other people these days, but I realize those are our common currency as narratives. And so if I'm trying to make a point quickly, I'll often refer to a film. Uh, but in the case of the images essay, it seemed helpful to talk about soundtracks because I don't know about everybody listening, but I thought it was inarguable that soundtracks have an effect on us, even though we're not thinking about how the music is made. And if I could make that point, I could move it over to images and fiction. Absolutely. And it's beautiful. And and it kind of it, that using sound to talk about image and then the Voight piece on paradox, that all like fixed right. together. So it's great. Um, let's see, let's find another one for you. Um, how does, how, how do you know when you're done is a question that's coming up a lot. How do you know yeah. when it's ready? How do you know when you're finished? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very common question. And it's a good one because uh, yeah, I mean, the challenge is, to make sure that you're spending enough time with the work. And, you know, there will be a time in the process, particularly in a novel or novella, but sometimes even with a story where you're sick of it. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're done. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, sometimes it means that you were done. (laughs) Right. It's too late now. Uh, And sometimes it just means you're in a rut, you know, you're thinking about the thing in the same way and you've been stuck on one thing for so long that you really can't, think any differently about it and so there's no pleasure in it and so you're sick of it and often then the answer is either to set aside or to say you know I'm going to write a scene from the point of view of this character I mean I'm going to write from the waiter's point of view I don't know who the waiter is I don't know why he's got anything to say but just to see what happens I'm going to try this and sometimes that says oh yeah yeah forget about the waiter but that reminds me this woman wants and you start to go in another direction so when are you done I was just talking to a a poet about this, and I think you do have to let yourself let work go when you truly believe that it's as good as you can make it now. You know, not that you're most excited about it because you finished it last night, but that that you've worked it over, you've thought about it, it feels to you that you've made deliberate choices, maybe not every word, you know, that thing, although I understand the impulse, but you really feel it's solid. You're proud of it. You're confident about it. You know that next year you might think about it differently and you could do better, but you know, you're not, you don't want to devote your entire life to writing one story or one poem. You want to, you want to offer more things to the world. And so there's another story to write. Nick asks about outlining. How do you feel about outlining before you actually sit down to write? And I think yeah. he's, he says stories or novels. Yeah, there are those uh, well, so Joseph Heller outlined, I talk about this in Amuse and Amaze, outlined Catch-22 pretty thoroughly before uh, he entered into the writing. Um, what E.L. Doctorow says, um, you no sooner need to know the end of a novel when you write it than you need to be able to see California when you set up from New York to drive across country. You only need to see you know, what your headlights can illuminate. But then John Irving said, I would no sooner write a novel or write a novel without knowing the ending than I would start to tell a joke without knowing the punchline. And you think, well, all right, somebody's right. Um, but I think the Irving thing is funnier, but 
it also is is misleading because you shouldn't hand somebody a novel to read without knowing the ending. But you know, as you write the joke, I mean, if you listen to Seinfeld talk about how he writes jokes, it could take a year to get a joke just right. I mean, that's a calibrated effect that you go after. And stand-ups, of course, rehearse their material and everything else before they feel like they've got it done. So uh, for me, as far as outlining goes, I usually write, a, whether it's an essay or fiction, I usually write a draft, a few drafts. At some point, I get hung up with pacing or logic if it's an essay. And then I either pull bullet points out of the draft that I have and say, well, that's my outline and what's wrong with it? You know, why does this not work? Uh, or I'll, I'll put the longer piece, I'm, I'm working on a hundred page story right now, or I'll push that farther away and I'll say, all right, what are the most important moments here? And where have I kind of lost track of where these people are going? So usually for me, outlining falls somewhere in the middle. I can't start with an outline because it makes the whole thing too rational. Right. And it's before I'm done, certainly. I, you know, and, and something else in the book that really helped me was how you talked about how the great, the, the meaningful beginning will come out of getting through the thing. It'll come at the end. Yeah. So knowing exactly how the story shall, should start comes out of endless revision. And I love that because I think a lot of times people worry, you know, I think a lot about, well, where do I even start with this? And right. I think in any writing project, it's like anywhere, anywhere that you've got a hook or you've got some little, any, I think of the lab again, like whatever cell or spore you've got right. that you're going to try that you can, you know, start growing stuff out of, you know, because you'll come back. I, I, I found that terrifically helpful. Yeah, it's really important. And it can be hard to do when you're starting out. You, you need to be able to let go of the first draft opening. You know, the thing that got you into the story is not necessarily where you want to start the journey for the reader. It was the start of your journey as the writer, but may not be the ideal place to start the reader. A great writer to read for that, of course, is Toni Morrison, because you read those openings and you realize so much is being set in emotion and so many questions, so many mysteries are being created at the beginning that she knows where she wants to go by that point. Did she write those first? I find it very unlikely. Maybe there's some writer who thinks that way, but typically by the time you get to the you know end of even a story, you think, oh, this is what needs to be set in place at the beginning. And maybe you just have to tweak the scene that you started with originally, or maybe you have to do something else in the beginning. So the last essay in the book is about beginnings. Which is, again, a great sound for images, endings for beginnings. We've got good, good circular <laughs> spiraling here. Um, Killing your darlings. Um, what do you do with the stuff you cut? Do you delete it or do you put it? What do you do with it? Yeah, I've got an entire uh, novel sitting on the bottom shelf of my bookshelf that I guess I killed because I haven't done anything with it. But but I keep thinking about those people. And one of them has come back to life in a very helpful way. Uh, and they're they're there. Um, I don't I don't you know, unlike you, unfortunately, I'm not a good notebook keeper, in part because I can't read my handwriting. Ah. Um, but I do have a file of, you know, odds and ends and beginnings of stories and notes. And sometimes I look back at that. Sometimes I don't understand why I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, other times I think, oh, why didn't I write that? You know, and I, I pull that back out. I, someone, I forget, it might have been Eliza Gabbard, but someone was talking about how it's much easier to cut when you just have a cut file. Like there's something psychologically instead of like deleting it, if you just 
cut and paste it into another file and say, well, I'm saving. Oh, you know, it's easier no. to like relocate your darlings. That's right. what they said. Right. And so right. that's my rule now is whenever I have something I feel like really close to, but I don't want to destroy it completely. I just put it in the little cut file and then you forget about your cut file. Well, yeah. with with the essays, I always do a page break at the end of the essay, and then as I cut stuff, I move it to the end. So I think, no, it's there if I want it, but I don't want it. But but it, you know, it's not That's, gone. See, I love these little. I like little, you know, just these little little tips. I I always love that stuff. Um, okay, let's see if anyone else did. If if you have any more questions, you can drop them in the chat. We have a few more minutes. Um, let's see what else do I have here for you. Um, I'm, I'm very, very, I think a few people are interested in your, um, your former life as a film critic. <laughs> so we won't, we won't grill you too much about that. Um, so well, I will say this, just in case it's useful to anybody. I thought I was going to go to college to study journalism. And I went to various schools that had very good journalism programs. And I ended up going to a Washington college on the Eastern shore of Maryland, which didn't have a journalism class just because I was so compelled by the by Bob Day, the guy who taught creative writing there at the time. I did, I was editor of the newspaper and and did all that, but but I, there was it was not an obvious path to being a professional journalist. But as an undergraduate, I wrote plays and screenplays and really bad poetry and fiction and nonfiction. And when I got to graduate school, you know, you had to declare yourself, you had to be a fiction writer or a poet. And I thought, well, this is kind of you know weak. So I still took poetry classes and I still, I wrote two screenplays there and I, and I, then that's when I did the film reviews and feature articles. And I realized sometimes people ask me, you know, do you wish you weren't writing, wish you were writing fiction and not about fiction. And I've just kind of come to peace with the fact that as a writer, you write, you know, and if it takes the form of a screenplay today, that's great. And if it takes the form of an essay tomorrow, fine, you know, it's, I, I try not to uh, value one of the, those things over another, but just to enjoy communicating in different ways. I think for me, what helps, uh, I, I agree 100%. And one of the things that helps me is to not think about the big nouns, like being a novelist or being a screenwriter or being a poet, but right. to think about the verb, which is writing. And, right. and, and if you love writing, it'll take you where you need to go. I mean, I was not, anticipating being shelved in self-help you know and but, but ended up there you know and it turns out that that format that kind of illustrated gift book that's where i can put all my weird stuff in there and and sell some books and and so you if you're open to that i think that's a great lesson for people of all ages at all stages of their writing journey if you're open to letting your writing take you where you want to go and not being too set on that noun or that title that or that object you know right. that you were focused on i think right. that's really solid advice yeah i know wonderful fiction writers who started as journalists wonderful fiction writers who started as poets poetry is always helpful to prose um and now i know a lot of uh students i knew as poets or fiction writers who have become really uh wonderfully accomplished nonfiction writers and so i just think yeah. you have to you know pursue your passion in the moment and that doesn't mean they won't come back to poetry or fiction it's just what they've been doing lately. Well, I don't think a lot of people know this about me, but I, I got, you know, hooked in writing because I had a fantastic uh, fiction professor when I was an undergrad at Miami, a guy named Stephen Bauer. So that's, mm. that's where I started out is writing terrible short stories. And that's what got me hooked 
you know, and writing in the first place. So, um, uh, so I, this is a great question. Do you ever create physical maps as part of your writing process? You know, not, not as much as, uh, I mean, I know some writers that I've written about some of them who do, obviously there's Faulkner and James Michener always made maps yeah. of progress. And maybe because I'm so inept at, you know, I'm not pleased by what comes out of my hand when I try to draw uh, that I don't tend to do that. But at some point I do, I do need to kind of think about physical space and just kind of where characters are operating. And uh, so it would probably be a good exercise to do, do more of that earlier. But usually at some point I realize, all right, these people have been in this house for a long time. And like, where's the bathroom? You know, where are the stairs? I yeah. mean, I really have no idea. Is this a big room or a small room? And what difference does it make? And so at some point I have to stop and think about space. I love that. Well, I think we're actually, this has been a hell of a good time for me. There are great, there were such great questions. I could ask you a million other things, um, but um, I think we'll pull Peter, the other Peter up here and, uh, and what we've got a little housekeeping for you, but I just wanted to thank you, Peter, for another great book. Your, your work really, it always encourages me to, you know, I just I feel the tendrils, you know, the expansion and the and I love your connective mind. I, I I I one thing I didn't get to talk to you about is how do we get to this place where we we're making con so many connections and having that associative mind. I I just really admire you for that. And so I want to thank you for for another great book and and another great conversation. Thanks. I really appreciate you doing this. And given that everybody's probably had enough of Zoom, I appreciate anybody who's tuned in to hear any part of this. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll cross paths in, in life sometimes, not virtually. In some time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We've had such a great crowd tonight. Thank you all for your, for your input. And uh, it's great to see so many of you from all over the world, even. It's fantastic. This has really been such a delightful and, and really stimulating talk. So Peter Turchi, Austin Cleon, such a pleasure. Only regret is that we can't all go out for drinks. And one day we will do Agreed. that, get a rain check, okay? <laughs> all right, I like it. And uh, I wanna remind everybody, you know, we've posted links in the chat with which you may purchase books. Better yet, if you're in the hood, please come on down, pay us a visit. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach district. We're open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 11 to eight, but Friday through Sunday, 11 to nine, we are slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Also want to point out City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary in 2023. We're going to be featuring a special calendar of events beginning in May and running through to the end of the year. This is going to include live in-store and online events. We're going to be featuring poetry readings in Kerouac Alley, historic tours, panel discussions, and so on. So keep an eye on our events calendar for pending announcements. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again very soon. Be well. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.